This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about why rituals matter. And in order to set the stage for our conversation today, JP, we're going to have a listen here to Professor Michael Norton, who is at Harvard University, talking about rituals and the effect that they can have on groups. So what is a ritual? We found that there's, there's group ones, there's individual ones, there's all kinds of ways that people build rituals into their lives. One way to think about them is, it's all the things we do that aren't the thing itself. It's not that rituals make us feel X, and therefore we do Y. Rituals sometimes in teams make us like each other more. And it turns out that when groups of people do rituals together, it has some really interesting psychological effects. So rituals aren't necessarily good or bad, but they're powerful and they really seem to have uh, bizarre sometimes effects on our thoughts, feelings, uh, and behavior. You know, groups do rituals all the time. We wonder, does it actually really help, or is it just something that the humans think is fun and then it doesn't do anything? So we did some experiments. We brought people into our lab and we put them in teams. And some teams we say, um, get to know each other. And other teams we say, do a ritual together. And we actually did the ritual that you just did. And then we send them out to do a scavenger hunt task that's really time constrained and they have to run around and they fight a lot during it because they don't know what to do. So we make them do things like this. Um, you have to go take a picture of your team pretending to be in strong in front of the university gym. Uh, here's another one, looking scared in the tunnels at Harvard Business School. We have a bunch of these tasks. They have to keep taking pictures of themselves all over campus. And what we find is that the teams that got to know each other, they do okay, but the teams that did a ritual actually do better. And the reason they do better on the task, it turns out, is because they like each other more and they coordinate better what they're gonna do. Now the effects aren't huge, of course, but just the idea of clapping and stomping together brings them together more closely. And we even found, usually when people come into our lab to do experiments, they don't have a very good time because they're typing things for an hour and then they leave. One of the teams, after they did this, that did the ritual, came up to my student and said, um, are we allowed to get each other's email addresses because we want to get together again? random strangers who we made do this, suddenly they were like best friends for the rest of their lives. So JP, let's dive in. How do we create or capture organically rituals in our culture that can have a similar effect on our teams? Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast brought to you by Thrive on Challenge. I'm JP Nurbin, joined by my friend and co-host Nate Sanderson. Each week in about 30 minutes, we discuss important principles and strategies of transformational leadership. At Thrive on Challenge, we help coaches to raise the standards and strengthen the relationships in their program because we know this type of culture produces better leaders, better people, and better results. To learn more about how we can help you, go to thriveonchallenge.com where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter and get the coaching notes to every episode of this podcast. So Nate, when you mentioned the idea of doing an episode of the podcast on rituals, I was a little hesitant. From my experience, rituals are pretty tricky when it comes to team culture. In fact, I probably have more experience removing certain rituals from my team than adding rituals, or at least more success at removing them. I remember years ago, I got our team to really reflect on the huddle where everybody puts their hands in and says, hey, team on three, or you know, defense on three. And I asked our team, you know, does this do anything? Does this help us? Or is this really just kind of a waste of time? Like, why are we doing this? I mean, we were kind of going through with this essentialism approach and taking out loads of different things that, that teams traditionally do. And, and it was great. I, I felt like I was emptying out all the clutter from my house. And we got rid of that, you know, that tradition of just putting your hands in, team on three. And I felt like we saved a lot of time. We were more efficient. 
And so from my perspective, I feel like I've been more of a ritual remover than a ritual adder because when I've tried to add certain rituals, you know, pregame rituals of the, you know, the team circling up and a certain, you know, mantra being, you know, said or, or whatever it is, I feel like players haven't seen the value in it or for whatever reason, that ritual hasn't had a lot of traction. But I know you've had a lot more success with them. I've asked other coaches about rituals that they have in their program. I would say that the responses that I've gotten, and this is across sports, are probably more similar to your perspective here that they just haven't invested a lot of intentionality in developing rituals to build and enhance their program. They may have things that they do year in and year out. It's almost by accident, or it's been the result of a team that was really superstitious about their socks or about what they wore to school on a game day or something like that, that just got passed down, but doesn't necessarily have a purpose or a mission behind it. It just became something that we do around here, which is certainly a characteristic of culture. I think what we want to get into today with our conversation is, number one, is there value in trying to either A, allow certain rituals to develop organically that are rooted in the values of your culture, or B, even be more intentional about creating kind of some of these behaviors that, that have a purpose that just goes beyond doing something repetitively because it's something we've always done. And in some ways for us, it was kind of the season of innocence. Like we had a lot of promise. We had a really good class coming in. We had some really good veterans in the mix. We knew we could be good, but we didn't really know how good. And sometimes that's a fun place to be. So as we went through the year, one of our focuses as a coaching staff was we're not going to try to put any extra pressure on our team to win the league or to get to the state tournament or anything like that. Like we're really going to focus on enjoying you know, the moment and creating a great experience. And that, that was going to be what our conversation was going to be about in practices and pregame, et cetera, right? Let's just focus on creating an environment we want to be in. Whatever happens, happens. Well, as we went through the year, there's a couple of factors that really, I think, influenced the development of some rituals that became part of our process that really benefited us at the end of the year. So one of them was in pregame, um, our, our kids would always listen to music and they'd bring the speaker in the locker room. And I know probably most teams do that, right, as part of their pregame routine. But for whatever reason, there, there started to be these three songs that every time I would come in, you know, 555, be my turn to come into the locker room and start drawing up on the board. And it, they started playing like these three songs always at the end of their jam session. And so that sort of became the, the first tradition of that season was when coach would walk in to start writing on the whiteboard, they would start the progression of song, you know, one, two and three. And as I finished the last thing that I was going to write and I'd set the marker down on the tray. Whoever was the DJ, like tried to time the fade out of the third song with me putting the marker down. And that sounds like a really simple thing, but it, it was sort of symbolic of now it's time to listen. Right. And it's time to do our, you know, our quick review. There were other things that kind of came out of that pregame. So we'd often talk about our three keys to the game and don't forget this, that or the other. But after I would get through that, I would always turn around and say, all right, listen, here's what's most important tonight. And that phrase that sort of became the foundation of our program, which was we play hard, we love each other, we do what we do, that didn't start on a t-shirt or a poster. It started out of this same sort of pregame pattern of 
We go through the three keys and I'd say, look, these are the things that are most important no matter what. And I'd say it in lots of different ways. We're going to go out. We're going to play as hard as we can. We're going to leave it on the floor. You know, we're going to honor each other with our effort, whatever that might be. We're going to care about each other, celebrate each other, experience, you know, appreciate each other. And we're just going to go do what we do. Whatever happens, happens. And so even within the pregame talk, there started to be this ritual ending that took a different form, you know, typically every game, but always had the same message. Now, during that season, there were also some things that we had intentionally put in as rituals. And again, I'm just sort of talking about pregame here. So as we would go out and take the floor, we would always come back to the locker room at the eight minute mark. And for a long time, my teams have taken communion together. And so we would get in a circle and we link arms and we're all standing next to the same person every time. We passed the gum around. So we had blue, green, and pink gum, and everybody got their favorite color. And we always started with the same person and they'd throw it to the same person. And they all end up back in the hands of the assistant coach. And then we would go around the circle and I would say, All right, what are you going to give to us tonight? And everybody would kind of shout out, you know, their one word, that kind of John Gordon principle, that one word for the year for them. You know, and it wasn't rebounding or shooting. It was it was effort, it was energy, it was that team culture thing that they felt like was their job to bring to our effort that night. And then I would always finish and we would we would bring our hands in JP as tight as we could because that was important to us and we would team it up and then we go back out on to the floor. And just to give you one more little example of a thing that just kind of developed and then I'll explain like why did this really matter for us? So at this time in the state of Iowa after players were announced, oftentimes they would go over and they would fist bump the officials and then go back to the free throw line. And so that kind of became a thing that we did, you know, just to honor the officials and whatever. Then once we went back out on the floor, we finished our warm up. the kids would sit down and sit in front of the starters, we'd do quick review, they'd go through the lineup, you do the anthem, right? And then our kids would get in another circle, JP, and they would lock arms and do the rock chalk thing and have a little chant that they did and we'd go out and take the floor. And so, all of these things sort of became for us like the gateway into the basketball game. Well, why did this matter? Well, as we went through the year, we, we get into the playoffs and we're ranked like maybe 10 or 12 or something like that. Like we're not favored to win our region, but we just start really playing well at the right time at the end of the year. And we end up qualifying for the state tournament. I think we went in as a seven seed. So, you know, we upset in the first round. We upset our opponent in the second round. We make it to the state championship game on that Friday night. And one of the things that, you know, we heard from so many people that watch us play at the state tournament is that your kids can seem so loose and they seem so comfortable and like it doesn't seem to be any pressure when they're out there, like they're just having fun. And I think part of it is because we had a very deliberate entrance, so to speak, or a process that we went through that psychologically and collectively allowed us to transition from walking into an arena and then going out to perform. And I think all of those rituals help provide some, some comfort and consistency for that. Last quick story here, JP. So some of these rituals were more difficult to do at the state championship because of the larger arena and the different time for warm up. And so, you know, for our communion circle, we couldn't make it back to the locker room because we're in this huge arena, we can't get back there. So we went into a, a service closet, you know, and we're in this sort of oval and kind of up the stairs, but we're not going to, you know, forsake doing communion like kids needed that to, to come together there was another you know at that time a lot in the state of iowa a lot of kids would get their names announced and they go fist bump the officials well at the state tournament all of a sudden they told us that we couldn't do that because there wasn't time so our kids are like well what do we do so i said well 
It's part of what we do. So go shake the opponent's hand and then you can come and shake my hand. And that became part of, you know, our pregame ritual. And so when we get to the state championship game, we didn't play great in the first half. And one of our freshman starters really had a, probably her worst half of the season. And just go in the locker room. I got to go do the TV interview and my assistants are taking the team in. And, you know, I, I come over a few minutes later and they're like, you know, she's totally desolate in the locker room. Like she's bawling. She's telling her teammates she doesn't want to go back out on the court. She's embarrassed by the way that she played. And and so we're like, nobody knows what to do. Nobody knows what to do. So we stood out there and talked for a few minutes. And we went back in and I decided that I'm going to just keep with our routine. You know, we go in at halftime. We talk about the adjustments. So we did that. We did the write up on the board. A couple of things we want to do differently. And then we had extra time because it was the championship game. It was on television. And so what we did was we went back to the music and we said, listen, we could all probably use a restart here to play better in the second half. And everybody's nodding their heads. And I said, why don't we just start where we normally start? Let's get the DJ out, get the speaker out. We went through those same three you know, songs. And then I went back through the same ritual speech that I had done right before we took the floor every time that year. We come out in the second half, play a great second half and have a chance to win the game. But I don't know that that happens, number one that we make it that far in the tournament. And number two, that we're able to come back in the second half. If we don't have those rituals to come back to that can bring us to the place, you know, where we were at our best and we were who we wanted to be. So when I hear that story of, of that season and all the rituals that you had in place, for me, I, there's a couple things that come to mind. First is you had a very, very superstitious basketball team that they had all these different things that uh, they just picked up and they just wanted to continue to do it. The second thing is there's a lot of rituals that you had in place. Like, and I could see how just hearing that one, it would be really hard to remember all those things in, in one sense, but the other sense is that it does, regardless of your environment, it brings you back to this process, this process of how we prepare like mentally for competition. I remember, I remember years ago reading about you know, Michael Phelps's rituals, personal rituals before he'd enter the pool to swim. And he did the same thing for over a decade. And, and, I, and when reading about that, part of me was like, okay, I get it. It's like this mental trigger to help him. But there's this other part of me that's just like, is that just him being superstitious? So like, what do you see as the, the value in having these type of rituals within the program other than just kind of this mental trigger that centers or refocuses you before competition? Well, I think, JP, on the one hand, anecdotally, I could see the way that it affected our team in terms of their focus, their preparation, you know, their lack of nervousness before a game. It was comforting, I think, for two reasons. One, because it was familiar, and two, because it was collective. Everybody was doing it. Everybody was doing the same thing. So it didn't really matter you know, where we were, how big the gym was, or if we're in an arena. It, it was a reminder of, this is who we are, and this is what we want to do, and that's it, right? And so in that regard, it's very comforting for us. As I've read more about, you know, just different rituals that are parts of other programs in James Kerr's book, Legacy, you mentioned the All Blacks here earlier. Um, there's a chapter on the rituals that they, you know, have adopted over the many, many years of their program. And some of the things that he describes in the book is that is that group rituals help to buffer individuals from things like uncertainty and anxiety and nervousness. And certainly there is a value in having your own 
individual preparation for a game, but when it's shared, I think it even multiplies the power, you know, or the potential anyway, that that ritual can have on a group. Um, they talk about in the book about, you know, for that All Blacks team of bringing in players from all kinds of different cultures and backgrounds and traditions, and yet everybody seems to unify, like, through the practice of these rituals that have developed over the years. So there's certainly part of that that says, yeah, we're different, but when we're together, we are one. And that's reflected in our practicing of some of these rituals. There's another phrase in there, you know, and I, I've thought a lot about this as we prepared for this episode. We keep saying over and over, you've got to ritualize to actualize, you know, as though there's an unlocking, again, for a group effort in the rituals for them to be able to actualize whatever the values are of that program. And I do think that that's part of the artistry as a coach. And, and one of the challenges that you alluded to earlier is how do we create or embrace or allow rituals to develop that don't become something that we do because it's just what we've always done and we don't understand it and be able to harness the power of, you know, that collectivity, that collective action so that your group can benefit, you know, in those ways. So coming back to the All Blacks rugby team, I mean, they're this great example of a team that uses rituals to connect to their story and their story to their values, their identity of who they want to be. Uh, in her book, Story Factor, Annette Simmons says, values are meaningless without stories to bring them to life and engage us on a personal level. And I think so often we struggle to bring our values to life. Like you talked about actualizing our values um, because there's no story behind that. And so I think if we're able to have rituals or we already have rituals within our program, we need to unearth those stories behind those so that people can connect to what it's about, like why we do this. Like think back to the example of just putting your hands in the circle. We've lost the purpose of that. You know, I, I don't know where that started or when it started, but if you're able to connect it, to a story of unity around, hey, we are the team that puts our hands in this circle. We're not the team that halfway puts it. We put them all the way in because we're connected. And it's this is who we want to be, this story of unity. Then it actually means something. But without a story, I don't know if these rituals mean a whole lot. You make a great point there, JP. And one of the things that Kerr talks about in that book about the All Blacks is that Part of the reason that their rituals are so impactful and so powerful for their players is because it's not just a ritual that's passed down from one generation of players to the next or one captain to the next, but the stories are retold. There's a story in the book about one opponent that they play every year, and every year that they have to travel to their stadium, they have to go across this long bridge. And when they go over the bridge, everybody on the team stands up and says, we never lose to Wales or whatever that team name is. And they've been doing this for years and for years, right? But the story about where that originated is also told every year to do exactly what you talked about there, to connect the meaning to the value to the ritual, right? So all three of those things are in place. And that's one of the, again, one of the things that makes their rituals so powerful is that their players are told the stories they're passed down so that they understand why are we doing this? Now, another analogy, JP, that I think a lot about is just the process that somebody goes through during a religious service, you know, or you attend a church service. And 
I've been on church boards and worship teams and church planning committees. And, you know, there's a lot of intentionality in the planning and thinking about the process that a visitor goes through from the moment that they park their car and walk in the door and they're greeted and there's the smell of coffee and there's smiling faces and people are welcoming. And then they sit in usually the same seats or the same area, you know, Sunday after Sunday. And then the music or prayer or, you know, whatever is part of the initial third of that service is really intended to transition their state from everyday normal coffee and donuts to a place of reflection where they're kind of open to the message. And I think in some ways, the rituals that we were experiencing prior to our games really provided kind of that same transition psychologically from one state to another, from being a student to being a performer, you know, or a performing athlete on the floor. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to gather our teams in a circle and, you know, light some candles and sing Kumbaya in order to get to our best place to practice. But you've experimented with a lot of our coaches with the quick set that I do think in many ways provides the opportunity for players to transition, not just physically, but psychologically into a place where they're ready to practice. Yeah. And if coaches are listening, they don't know what the quick set is. It's, it's more than just a set of drills, though. Many people would say, oh, you're just doing you know, one drill or three drills or five drills, and you're doing them in a short period of time. But the, I, the real idea behind it is you're really emphasizing the behaviors that are important to your culture and you're connecting it to the values. So it's a ritualistic way of starting practice and or a game where every player is going to kind of do one cycle of a drill or one rep, but it's, we're going to go a high quality rep where you're going to model, everyone's going to model the behaviors that are important to us. So if you value communication, or you value sprinting, or you value high fives, or whatever it is that you really value when it comes to behaviors, that's the focus of the drill. It's not the drill itself. It's not, do you make your shot? Do you make your layup? Do you make your, you know, whatever it is that, you know, sports you're playing. It's all about the behaviors. And then within that also, the coaches take a very different role than traditional. It's about moving towards a player-led culture. So the coaches aren't coaching. They're just calling reset in that quick set drill. And the players are the ones that have to step up and, and give encouragement and remind each other and hold each other accountable when a certain individual doesn't meet the standard. So it's all about what type of culture do we want for the next 90 minutes of this practice? What type of team do we want to be for the next 40 minutes of this game or 60 minutes of this game, whatever it is? You're saying we're going to be that right here, right now, every single last player before we move into onto anything else. And that's the value of the quick set is it's, it's this ritualistic way of just focusing on things that are really, really important to your culture and making sure you nail that before you move into anything else. Well, JP, I think part of the power of what you just described there with the quick set is it's not what you're doing. It's not three magical drills that prepare us for practice. It's how we do those drills. And the ritual is really, we don't start practice until we're at a level that we want to practice at, right? In terms of the culture and the, and the quick set just provides a vehicle for them to get to that place. There's a lot of examples that we could share from other programs. You know, I think of Phil Jackson in his book, Sacred Hoops. He talks about the importance of starting every day in the circle, you know, and that's their, that's their symbol and their physical expression of the connection. You know, this team is united in a circle. There's no starting point. There's no ending point. 
And Jackson would talk about, you know, the background of that and Native American culture and all kinds of different ways. He would explain the meaning of the symbolism and why they start in, in, in circles. There, there's other examples, too, I think, of, that are just little things like how your players come out of a game. You know, we've gone through this with our team this year a little bit, that, that we want to acknowledge everybody on the bench when we come out. That sounds like a little thing, but if we're asking our, you know, our reserves to give us energy and enthusiasm and celebrate, and yet when our rotation players come in and out of the game, the least they could do is acknowledge them with a high five down the line, and that's not something that was, you know, they were in the habit of doing. So we've tried to implement that as, again, acknowledgement of what they're giving, and it allows those reserves to give them a little encouragement as they're going down. I think of Will Ray, who's been on the podcast before, you know, runs a one-three-one defense, and one of their their basketball values is deflections. They want to be disruptive to the offense. So their ritual is every time a player gets a dead ball deflection, they tip the ball out of bounds, play stops. Everybody on the floor goes and just, they got to get in touch with that guy. High five, tap him on the back. It's an acknowledgement of their effort because deflections aren't easy to get. And so everybody in that way, even in the crowd is like, oh, Jeremy did a great job getting a touch on the ball. And all his players are acknowledging that, right? Think about all the little cultural things that are reinforced in a situation like that. Just one other quick example here is I think of Joe Ehrman's book, Inside Out Coaching. And when they were building the, the football program, the high school program that he was working with, rituals don't always have to be daily. Like it, We're not just talking about rituals that happen before every game or before every practice or every time we gather in the locker room. There can be annual rituals that can have a lot of power. And he talks about the night before the last game, you know, before senior night, they take the seniors down to the field and they just give them time, you know, sort of to, to come to terms with the end of their high school career and to, to walk the field sort of in a almost a meditative way with, their, with the rest of their team kind of on the side, just supporting them and how important that has been for just seniors in preparing for that last game of their career. That's a really powerful ritual that is sort of taught in advance. But everybody has seen their teammates do it year after year after year. So it becomes even more special when it's their turn to have their last moment, you know, with with the sacred acre, so to speak. So when it comes to implementing, like really intentionally implementing these rituals, I think it's really challenging. Like I remember one ritual that I think you see in the movie Rudy, you know, exists out there is when Notre Dame walks onto the field. There's the play like a champion today and every player slaps, you know, every football player slaps that sign. Like I've seen many programs try to replicate that type of thing, but it doesn't have the story behind it. So from my perspective, it's really hard to implement certain rituals, especially when we just try to copy what the next guy down the line is doing. And so I think it's like a lot of things within your culture, you need to, you know, implementing and, and trying different strategies or systems that we talk about here, there's a bit of tailoring it to the story of your program, to the needs of your player, and to where they are at. Even like the quick set, not every coach that I work with does the same drills. They all do very different drills and they do them in different ways, but the underlying purpose is still there. And that underlying purpose is the most important thing I think that needs to be communicated to players when implementing the quick set. And just like if you rolled out the play like a champion sign, uh, to, you know, play like a champion today sign outside your locker room, you would want your players to know that, hey, this is 
some sort of mantra. This is who we want to be. And this is what a champion is. And you would want to connect to those type of things. And so the coaches that I know, like yourself, that have been intentional in implementing certain rituals, they have not just looked for things that have happened organically, but they've been intentional in modifying certain ideas or things they've come across, fitting them to their program, but really communicating to their players why they are doing it. Well, at the end of the day, JP, I think regardless of what your approach is, whether rituals are developing organically, whether they're the result of a bunch of superstitious players, or whether you're really trying to implement something specific to you know, reinforce a cultural value or address an issue, I think intentionality is the key for coaches. And just going back to you know, your conversation about getting rid of the hands in at the end of your timeouts, I don't know how much time that's actually saving you. Maybe you're long-winded in the timeout. You've got to get that last thing drawn on the board. But I think the question that I would ask you or your team or your captains is, why do you think that ritual developed? And when we think back to the first team that ever put their hands in and yelled out team or together or whatever, why did they do that? It's a symbolism of unity. It's a symbolism of coming together. My next question would be, is that something that this team needs? Like, does that benefit us to come together again at the end of the timeout before we take the floor? And if the answer to that question is yes, it doesn't mean that we have to bring our hands together. Maybe we do something else. You know, maybe maybe we just fist bump when we go out. Maybe there's another again, ritual that sort of closes the timeout and and ushers us back onto the floor. But if your players decide it's important for that value to be brought to their attention in that moment, then allowing them to think about, is it hands together or something else can be a really valuable conversation. So if you find the podcast valuable, you might like to get your hands on our coaching notes, especially if you listen to the podcast while you're running or driving the car or like I'm about to be doing a lot more of, and that is pushing a baby stroller. At the time of recording, my wife and I are expecting our third child, which is uh, due around Christmas. Anyways, you can get the notes of this episode in every episode if you are a TOC subscriber. Becoming a subscriber is 100% free. All you need to do is go to thriveonchallenge.com or subscribe using the link in the details of this episode. You'll get an email with the notes every Thursday, as well as the culture and leadership guide PDF, five ways a leader can improve their culture PDF and the culture transformation kit PDF. My only ask is if you do subscribe, we appreciate you leaving us a review uh, wherever you listen up to your podcast and also share one of your favorite episodes on social media just to spread the word. So don't miss out on these free resources. Become a TOC subscriber today.